I experienced things young. At 16, I was pregnant. I pretended as if everything was fine, but the truth was I was seeking approval from everyone. I really had a misconception of what love was supposed to be like. Different relationships in my life had given me the idea that love was conditional and to be worked for and could be taken away. About 22, I think I had had it. I was so empty. I was lacking authentic relationships. I was lacking direction and I was ready for more, but I didn't know what more meant. I wanted to go to church and FCF was the second one that we came to. I was intrigued and I began listening more carefully, attending church every Sunday. I began doing my own studies and really diving in. I needed evidence. And one day, Randy walked by and it was completely against my nature to ever ask for help, uh, but I did. I think I just thought that I had too much to lose not to ask for help. And he agreed and I met with him and he gave me a lot of things to really dive into. I went home, I went through these evidences and I really took to heart each piece that I was looking through. I, I went through it slowly and, and I really took my time and I found overwhelming evidence. Evidence that I needed, evidence that I couldn't dispute and really I got to the point where I was 99% sure and this bothered me. I didn't want that 1%. I wanted 100%. I wanted to fully give myself to Christ, but I couldn't because I wasn't sure. Ten years before, my mom had given me a sign, and on the outside of it, it said the verse, Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And this verse gave me courage and really motivation that if this God was real, He was not going to leave me. He was going to find me and He would get me through this. But as years went by and I still couldn't say with 100% clarity that I believed in Jesus Christ, it began to be discouraging. I remember going to bed one night and I was telling him how I was giving him everything I had and he was not keeping his promise. And I'm yelling to a God that I don't even know is 100% real. And all of a sudden I'm calm. And I knew at that time that I was being comforted by the creator of this universe. However, the very next day being the skeptic and doubter that I was, I came up with excuses for that moment. That week I emailed Randy and I told him how frustrated I was in myself. And I got an email back that was the game changer. I don't remember anything in the email except for the last line. You're on your way to a big, well done, good and faithful servant. I needed Christ to speak through Randy. I needed him to say that to me, that he was not angry with me, that he was very patient and he was proud of me for searching. And I knew that that was the missing piece to the puzzle. I had a misconception of what love was. I didn't understand that God was so good and that love was so good. And He is so patient. He's so merciful and so forgiving. I'm thankful that He brought me down this road. I needed to see that there were things that I needed to, 
to work through. I needed to be healed in areas I didn't even know were hurting. And I needed a loving father to take me down these roads. Well, it would be great if uh, we could feel Jesus all around all the time. It would be uh, even better if we could see him with our eyes and hear him with our voice all the time. But that's not the case we find ourselves in right now. Consequently, there's a lot of reason for doubts to rise up in our hearts. And for what it's worth, as beautiful as that song is, and we all that have followed Christ for a season, we do know there are times that we feel his presence more than at others. The truth of the matter is, he's present whether we feel him or not. And there's something more substantial we can look to rather than just feelings. Feelings are important, they're good, but they're not ultimately what we should look to as far as being confident of the presence and the character of God. Uh, I had an image that came to me thinking about this. You know, uh, how many of you in here are parents? Let's see your hands. Uh, you've probably gone through this then. Uh, remember that episode, you know, in your, your child-rearing years where you're trying to teach your little baby to go to sleep. Now, you know, they, usually you're, you're letting them fall asleep in your arms, you know, and then you, you sneak them into the crib, man, and you're hoping like crazy you can get away, you know, that they don't wake up. But then finally you get to that point, it's like, okay, baby's old enough now that the baby has to learn to just go to sleep on its own. And you go through that stage where you let the baby cry themselves to sleep. How many of you are just so mean? You've done that before with your baby. Okay, yeah, well, we're all mean then. Think about what it probably felt like to the baby. Uh, the, the baby is crying, almost hyperventilating, because the baby feels abandoned, that you're not there, that you're not present. But where are you, parent? You're right outside the door, and you're looking, and you're fighting yourself whether to go in and pick the little child up. You see, Jesus is present. God is present whether we feel him or not. And there's hardcore fact-based evidences that we can look to to undergird this thing we call walking with the Creator Christ, trusting in Him. If you listen to Katie's story, Katie was one that was a, a real skeptic. She didn't like it, but I was so thrilled that she was because Katie was not lazy in any way, shape, or form. She was willing to dig in. She didn't just ask questions and and then not be willing to do the work, but she dug in, she read, and she read, and everything got pitched her way. She researched until she got to 99%, you know, in her research. So there's something better than feeling Jesus all around, albeit that removes a lot of doubts concerning the existence of God, if we all could, or even if he was better yet. He was here on the earth, like I say, people couldn't quite argue with the existence of God. He's here doing the same kind of miracles that he did in those days. But really, that doesn't, that doesn't remove all the doubts. That only removes level one doubts, the existence of God. Level two doubts are probably more familiar to most of us in here. I'm just going to assume that, that a large number of us in here, at least, have made that critical decision in life to uh, be reconciled with our Creator, just like we were broken from a relationship with Him because of a broken trust. Adam and Eve had started in the Garden of Eden, no longer trusted God. We have all followed suit, and some of us, a large number of us, probably have returned to Christ, our Creator, in trust. But the truth be told, we still have doubts. 
But our doubts are not level one. Our doubts are more level two. We, we're not sure what God's willing to do for us concerning provision. We're not exactly sure what he'll do for us concerning protection. We're, we're not exactly sure what he will enable us to do. We're not exactly sure what he wants to do through us and so forth. And so these are the, the places that most of our doubts come. Now we're going to look at a portion of scripture that zeroes in right on level two doubts. But we're going to go back. We're going to circle back and deal with level one doubts as well. But we're going to look at level two because we're going to look at the apostle Peter. It's about three years into Jesus' ministry. His ministry only lasted three and a half years. And so we're going to see him working with his disciples in an unusual context. He has lingered behind on shore to pray during the night. He has sent them in a boat across the lake. And they're all alone and they're caught in a storm at sea. So let's go ahead and look at the text. And I'll give you a little more context when we get there. Because it's going to be critical for really understanding what God's intent is in this particular scene. So go ahead and turn to page 1109. 1109 and that'll be Matthew. Man, I'd like to hear some pages flapping. Yeah, yeah. 1109. Uh, they were really flapping in the first service. I don't know what's up with you guys. <laughs> page, page 1109. And we'll be looking at Matthew 14. And we're going to start in verse 22 um, and go through 33. Now, just to give you a little more context, like I say, it's the third year. Opposition of the religious leaders who were jealous of Jesus. They're turning against him. He had just gotten news that his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. Uh, he also had just performed a tremendous miracle, feeding 5,000 men, not to mention women and children. Could have been 15,000 people, who knows, with just you know, five loaves of bread and two small fishes. All this is the backdrop when you come to verse 22. So it's after feeding the 5,000, we read in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dispersed the crowds. After he sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat, already far from land, was taking a beating from the waves because the wind was against it. As the night was ending, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind, he became afraid, and starting to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, and here's our key phrase, you of little faith or little trust, why did you, and what is the word? Doubt. Why did you doubt? So here it becomes very important that we understand what this is about because there, there's a lot of uh, real Christ followers that are kind of naive in their uh, understanding of how to interpret Scripture, and Scripture has to be interpreted according to its own laws and principles, context, being one of the most critical, understanding God's overarching purposes, being critical as well. So here's the thing. Jesus knew from day one when he called these 12 guys, one being a traitor that he knew was a traitor from the start. He becomes replaced later on by the Apostle Paul. But he knew that he was not just calling these 12 guys to just be the first ones to trust in him. But in fact, he was training them from day one, training them, shaping them, preparing them 
for taking over the kingdom ministry once Jesus went to the cross, sacrificed his life for our sins, rose from the grave, and then ascended back to heaven. So here's these very, very ordinary guys. I don't know that we get the sense when we read scripture of who these guys were. They were everyday blue-collar individuals. They were not the highly educated. They were not the cream of the crop by any means. They were, they were flawed, sinful people. We would feel quite comfortable with them, more than likely. And yet Jesus chose them as the ones that he would pass over his ministry, put it in their hands, pass the baton to them, and they would become the ones to spread this message of the truth about God and the truth about life as it all centers in Jesus. They would be the ones. And here we are 2,000 years later, and their words are still molding and shaping hearts and lives of people all over the world, every place you go in the world. So you must understand that behind this miracle is this process where God is preparing these 12. And you see, they still had this messianic understanding of things that was typical for Jews in those days that, you know, like when the Messiah comes, man, he's going to take over the world. And if you happen to be his boy, man, you're going to sit on his side and you're going to be a political power broker. And this is the image these guys still had. And Jesus knew it was not going to be so. But in fact, to be a true son and daughter of the kingdom was going to mean that you're going to present this message of the truth about God and the truth about life with lots of wind blowing against you, lots of opposition, lots of waves, tempestuous waves. And this scene here was a good picture of what they were going to face. Notice Jesus was not in the boat. He's away. He's staying back on land. When Jesus goes to the cross, rises from the dead, ascends, he's away now in heaven. It's the same picture of the way they were going to have to function once that occurred. And yet when they felt their most alone, when they felt the most overwhelmed, when they felt the most outgunned, Jesus shows himself to be very much aware, very much there. And even when Peter sinks under the circumstances that distract him and keep him off of his focus on Jesus, Jesus is there to scoop him up and save him. I was telling somebody in my office this week, and, I, and I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. I, I literally cannot count the times in my life that Jesus has saved me in lots of very concrete ways. I mean, even before I ever became a believer in Christ. I mean, literally, concretely saved my life that shouldn't be existent today, but saved me in many other ways too. And so our doubts, they don't cancel out God's engagement and involvement with us in any way, shape, or form. Here's an apostle who had his doubts. Now, there's a, there's a well-meaning, naive group of Christians that when they read this scripture, not understanding context and so forth, they primarily focus on the miracle. And their thought is, is that, that God wants us to ratchet up our faith, our trust, so that we can have miracles. In other words, what he really was trying to teach Peter here is how to walk on water. This was a class on water walking. And if God's people all had enough faith, we'd all be water walking. You know, we, we'd be spoiling people's time at the beach. People be at the beach, and they'd be sitting there on the shore, the non-believers saying, I am so sick of those Christians. Look at them. They think they're something walking around on the water don't they know you're supposed to swim in the water I bet they can't even swim that's why they walk on the water <laughs> but there's a certain branch of Christians I'm calling them brothers and sisters in Christ but they're so they're so immature I don't have to say it in their faith they don't understand that God meant this to be something bigger it was to prepare them is to prepare me and you now 
to take this message of Christ, the truth about God, the truth about life, share it with our world, and there's going to be opposition. It is not going to be easy. It's going to be fighting against the storm, and it's going to feel at times like Jesus is not with us. We're going to feel terribly alone, but he's there just like he was there for them. That's the bigger message. So let's look at doubts now. We're going to circle back. Let's look at doubts on level one. Level one doubts are about the very existence of God himself. And there's all kinds of reasons why we have doubts. Let's face it. I can see you and you can see me. If you were to talk, I could hear you and you can hear me. This is what we're used to. But the truth be told, we cannot see God with the same, you know, way that we see each other. We can't hear him the way we hear each other. If some of you are hearing God, uh, we can talk later, uh, you know. God primarily talks to us today, though, through his word. That's his chosen methodology. If you're hearing him talk in your head, you know, we'll talk. I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying you may want to talk with me or somebody. So this causes doubts. I'm used to functioning with individuals that I can see and hear. You can't do that with God. The other thing that causes us doubts is that when we pray, and this has been one of my stumbling blocks all my Christian life, When we pray, we cannot see behind the scene and see what happens. In other words, if I could see angels being dispatched and running all over and then whispering in your ear and saying, read your Bible, read your Bible, you know, I'd be really confident, man. I'd be praying for you, you know, more regularly probably, but I don't know what happens. I don't know how it functions. Some of you maybe have read those books and you think you do. Remember the guy that wrote all the books about the angels battling each other, body slamming each other? Forget all that. We just don't know as much as we'd like to. So... We can't see the spiritual dimension. It's cut off from us by God's choice for now. The other thing is we live in a world where everyday people act as though God either does not exist or if he does exist, he really is inconsequential. He doesn't matter at all. All you got to do is turn on the TV, turn on the radio, read a book, look at some news, and, and everybody's functioning. Intelligent people, successful people are all functioning as though God either is not there at all or if he's there, he really doesn't matter an awful lot. That brings doubts to us, let's be honest. And then on top of it all, we live at a time where people have become so enlightened, so intelligent, they have so much information, uh, you know, and we have so many academics, people from the science community that, that tell us there's just not sufficient evidence to believe that God is even there. And that can be really intimidating. They kind of tell us that if you knew what we knew, <laughs> you, you, you children you would know that there's no God at all. That's kind of the impression they give us. And let's be realistic. It can rattle you when you're face-to-face in a conversation with people like this. It can, it can stir doubts. Now, let's just start with that principle of those that are in the academic world, the scientific world. Came across a very interesting set of statistics. February 2014, sociologist Elaine Howard Eklund and her colleagues at the Rice University and the American Association for the Advancement of Science reported results from the largest study of American views on science and religion. In all, 2 million out of nearly 12 million scientists are evangelical Christians. Let me explain what evangelical Christians means. That means Bible-believing, Christ-centered, Christ-following Christians. 2 million scientists is not small out of 12 million. Are they just the brain dead? No, no. We have some scientists in this church that are very brilliant people and very devoted followers of Christ. This notion that if you are 
intellectually attuned, you would not possibly believe that there could be a creator, much less that the creator came to the planet in Christ. It's just nonsensical today. In fact, science is more and more and more proving how ridiculous not believing in the existence of a creator designer really is. So on level one, we see that that just doesn't really pan out very well. Let me share a verse with you now that moves us a little further on in this. In Matthew chapter 11, it says, Now when Jesus heard in prison about the deeds, excuse me, now when John heard in prison about the deeds Christ had done, he sent his disciples to ask a question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look yet for another? So if you have doubts as a follower of Christ, here's John the Baptist. The, the guy that was introducing Christ the Messiah to the world. And he's in prison and he started having doubts himself. Are you the one or should we look for someone else? Back a little bit with the whole scientific uh, atheistic community. Something that's always been interesting to me is um, if you were to think of the image of a baby inside its mother's womb and imagine the baby thinking to itself, I don't believe in the existence of a mother. And that's what I think of the atheistic world doing. They say with great confidence, they declare that there's no creator that exists. And yet the scripture says in Acts 17, 28, it says, in him, meaning God, we live and move and have our being. Their very life they're deriving from this creator they say they don't believe in, just like a baby, like I say, in the womb. By the way, I mentioned it last week and I'll mention it again. I'll circle back to John the Baptist. The next time you are in a conversation with somebody that sort of implies that their academic uh, achievements have shown them that, you know, God is just for people that need it, but they, they know better, you might want to remind them of something, that of all the knowledge there is to possess in the universe, their own scientists will acknowledge right now 95% of the information about the universe. 95% of reality is what they are now labeling dark matter and dark energy. That's just their way of saying, we, we don't know what it is. We know it's there, but we don't know what it is. We see the evidence of it, but we don't know. Therefore, the best and the brightest that you and I will ever meet and ever encounter in a conversation, they have 5% of all the knowledge that exists in the universe. How many of you wouldn't want a surgeon operating on you who only knew 5% of what there is to know about your particular surgical procedure. I don't want that person operating on me. So the next time one of these people wants to impress you with, you know, if you were smarter in essence, you would know better, just remind them of how much they don't know. 95%. All their knowledge is based on 5%. Okay, back to John the Baptist. Even a believer, though, can get confused because we, we sometimes are not familiar enough with God's principles of action. This is one of the things I've learned uh, through the years that Christ followers have the greatest of difficulty with. We, we don't know what we can expect from him. We haven't absorbed his principles sufficiently from scripture. We don't know his overarching plan. Therefore, we expect things from God that he's never promised and sometimes we get confused and, and we start doubting. And so it becomes critical that we become very, very familiar with God's strategy, his plans, his procedures, and so forth. Here's a, one classic example of a doubter, and uh, most of us will be familiar with him. Listen to these words from John 20, 25. Shows again that a real disciple who had lived three and a half years with Jesus still struggled. The other disciples told him, meaning Thomas, that's who this is about, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, he is Thomas. 
Unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds from the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. This is a guy who saw Jesus raise the dead, walk on water, multiply bread to feed 5,000, open blind eyes, and, and on and on, heal thousands of illnesses. And yet when Jesus rises from the dead and appears to the first group of disciples on the first week, the Sunday, he was not there. Thomas wasn't there. And then the disciples say, we, we saw it, man. It's the real deal. Just like Jesus kept telling us, he really rose from the dead. We saw him. And Thomas is like, yeah, right. Until I can put my finger in the wound in his hand. I'm not buying this, guys. Until I can put my hand in his side. One week later, one week to the day, it's the following Sunday, Jesus appears. And he says, go ahead, Thomas. Put your finger in the wound. Go ahead. Put your hand. He still had the wounds. And Thomas falls on the floor. And he says, my Lord and my God. He finally knew who Jesus was. All that we can ever understand or know about God, it's right there. It's right there in Jesus. It's God saying, I'm going to so let you know who I am that there will be nothing more left. If you reject me now, you've rejected me in everything that I can ever offer for you to know about myself. Came across a guy recently. It's a modern day Thomas, sort of a skeptic. And his name is Jim Wallace, a cold case hom homicide detective, uh, he called himself a hardcore atheist and evidentialist. Now, I like the idea of evidentialist. I wish all Christians were evidentialists. What it means is that my faith or his faith is only based on something that is sufficiently supported by intelligent facts. He follows the path of facts. But let me go on to share with you what he says about himself. As an atheist... I was very comfortable as the captain of my own ship. I had been a police officer for nearly 10 years and was used to being in charge in difficult situations. I didn't like intrusions. There was no room for God in my life. I am not a theist today because I was raised by believers. I wasn't. I'm not a believer because I was hoping for heaven or afraid of hell. I had no sense of value for either. I am not a theist because I was trying to fill a void or satisfy a need. I felt none. I believe God exists because the evidence leaves me no reasonable alternative. He's a fascinating guy. He's written three books, and he's gone from being a, home, a cold case homicide detective to being a pastor, ironically, from atheism to a pastor. Here's the other part of the story that you wouldn't know. He decided at age 35, prodded by his sister, to put his, his uh, the way he studies a hardcore case, a cold case, to put that on examining Christianity and examining the scripture. She was a Mormon herself, and she also urged him to do the same thing with the Book of Mormon. He took the challenge. He applied his, his methodology of seeking evidence, trustworthy evidence. He concluded at the end of the study that God existed and Christ was God, and he has been a fully devoted follower ever since. He also came to the conclusion that the Book of Mormon was utterly fallacious, no basis of truth in it whatsoever, that it was built on myth, no archaeological support, no historical support, not to be trusted, not to be believed. Interesting how different his conclusions were. So there's nothing wrong with doubting. Catch me now where I'm going. There's nothing wrong with doubting if you're a Katie or you're a Jim Wallace and you are willing to do the hard work and follow the path of evidence because the evidence is there. It is compelling. 
And so a lot of times people come to me with doubts, but they're not willing to do the sufficient research to get their doubts removed. Something to think about. Listen to these words from the book of Acts that talk about evidences. It says in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, it says, After his death he showed himself to them, meaning the disciples, and gave many, many convincing what? Proofs, many, not a few, many convincing proofs that he was alive, that he had really risen from the dead. During a period of 40 days, they saw him. He didn't just appear one time or two times. Continuously for 40 days, they saw him, and he spoke with them about the kingdom of God. That's, that's compelling evidence. When you read scripture, you, you sense your Dealing with facts and historical figures and archaeology just keeps backing it up again and again. So, let me throw something out to you. If you are struggling with level one type of doubts about the existence of God and that sort of thing, uh, I, I did a class, I don't know, two or three years ago. We advertised it recently, but let me do so again. It's called Why We Believe. We call it the Bible Institute in 2013. If you go to fcfchurch.com, click on Grow and Connect, and then Bible Institute, you can follow this. And let me just talk some of the things we cover in that. You see, science now has, has opened the door to give compelling evidence for the existence of God. The Big Bang itself is a compelling evidence for God's existence. DNA is nearly an overwhelming evidence for the existence of God. Something called the anthropic principle, the idea that, that our world is, is just precision. There's so many precision uh, factors for life to exist as it is. We talk about the evidences for the resurrection. We talk about the trustworthiness of the manuscripts. We talk about Bible prophecy. Most Christians don't know that one-third of the Bible is predictive prophecy. All of, most of them have already come to pass accurately. Some of them right now in our lifetime are coming to pass right before our eyes. And so the huge amount of evidence that is available. I, I, I urge you, if you struggle with questions or you want to be able to answer people better, uh, take advantage of that course that we, we offered some time back. Level two kind of doubts. Listen to what Jesus said when he went to his hometown of Nazareth, the place that, you know, you would have thought he would have been the most welcome. In fact, he was the most disrespected. Going to Nazareth, it says he was amazed at their lack of trust. He couldn't do many miracles because nobody would come out and provide, you know, him a context for it. They just, ah, we know this guy. He grew up around here. They didn't take him serious. One more time, in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, we have a situation that's probably more of what our experience might be. This father comes to Jesus. His son is demon-possessed. Not psychologically troubled, demon-possessed. And the disciples themselves could not cast this demon out of this guy, so they bring him to Jesus. And the father is just shattered. He's broken. He said, Lord, if you can do anything, if it's possible for you to do anything, and if you have some compassion, please do something. And Jesus says, if I can do anything... He says, how about if you can do anything? If you can believe, if you can trust, all things are possible. And then the Father says these words that, that I think are familiar maybe to some of our experience. Instantly, the father of the child exclaimed, I do trust. Help my what? Lack of trust. Many of us probably, we say, I do trust you, Christ. I do. But sometimes when I get in the storm of life and everything is going wrong and, and I can't sense your presence and, and, and I just don't know if you're caring for me or not. I don't know if I can do the things you call me to do in your word. I don't know if I can be who your word says you want me to be. And, and I say, I do believe. I do trust you, Lord. But please help my lack of trust. I want to trust you more. 
And, and those are the kind of doubts that God is good at dealing with. When Peter sunk, he picked him up. He didn't, he didn't let him drown. And he'll never do the same with any of us. One more time on an on a educational, intellectual level, you know, show that, that there's brilliant people that find compelling evidence for following Christ. John Lennox, author and professor at Oxford University. He's a professor of mathematics. He's written many books that emphasize the powerful evidences for the existence of God and the evidences for Christianity. Anyway, he was taking a tour in uh, Eastern Europe, and during the time, uh, he was going to go through the uh, uh, places where the Holocaust occurred, and he came to Auschwitz. Now, traveling along with him was a Jewish lady who lived in South Africa. And so this was a particularly difficult place for her because she was trying to research what had happened to some of her family who had perished in the Holocaust. So they get to Auschwitz, and there's these displays of Joseph Mangala, you know, the horrible doctor who did these horrific ex experiments on human beings while still alive and so forth. And so I'm going to pick up the conversation. Uh, I don't want to trust my memory to say this. I'll just read it to you word for word. They came to a point where they were looking at these displays of Mangala, and the lady, the Jewish lady says, at that point of their tour, the Jewish woman turned to Lennox and said, what does your religion make of this? Lennox writes, what was I to say? She had lost her parents and many relatives in the Holocaust. I could scarcely bear to look at the Mangala photographs because of the sheer horror of imagining my children suffering such a fate. I had nothing in my life that remotely paralleled the horror her family had endured. But still she stood in the doorway waiting for an answer. I eventually said, I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. What is more, I have young children and I cannot even bear to think how I might react if anything were to happen to them, even if it were far short of the evil that Mengele did. I have no easy answers, but... I do have what, for me at least, is a doorway into an answer. She responded, what is it? He goes on, I said, you know that I am a Christian. That means that I believe that Yeshua, or Yahshua, however you want to pronounce it, it's just, just the word for Jesus, um, is the Messiah. I believe that God was incarnate, which means God was there in Jesus' humanity, and came and come into our world as a Savior, which is what his name, Yeshua, or Yahshua, uh, means, it just means God saves, is what Jesus means. Now, I know that this is even more difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. And here, I'll have you focus on the screen. Look at the top. This is what he said to her next. If Yeshua was really God, as I believe he was, what was he doing on a cross? That's where he started the conversation with her. He goes on. Could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering but became part of it himself. For me, this is the beginning of hope and it is a living hope that cannot be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead and one day as the final judge, he will assess everything in absolute fairness, righteousness, and mercy. Now, the story doesn't end there. Let me follow up again. Lennox says, there was a silence. She was standing, arms outstretched, forming a motionless cross in the doorway. 
After a moment with tears in her eyes, very quietly but audibly, she said, Why has no one ever told me that? Told me that about my Messiah before. Now, I want to challenge you with something that I've experienced numerous times through the years. I've had people that my initial impression of them was, man, this is an impossible case. This person is so closed-minded. This person is so defiant. This person is such an intellectual giant. They have so many puzzling questions and arguments that, that I felt shot down and intimidated. But I just kind of trust God, and I just sort of venture into it. And I'm not saying I've hit, you know, batted a thousand, but I've been shocked at times by what small portions of truth I've been able to share with people and watch all their house of cards of arguments just come crumbling down. And, and, and literally see them become a humble person, at least open, at least open. So believer in Christ, don't shrink back. Whatever little you may have, share it. And what you don't know, tell them you don't know it, but you'll do what you can to try to find answers or move them toward answers because it can have a powerful life-transforming effect on people, the people that we feel at times the least likely to return to Christ. Let me sum this up for you in my words. Seeing God in Christ removes our doubts, or at least it's meant to. You see, by God appearing in Christ, taking on human form, living a perfect sinless life, performing miracles to show that he actually can save us from the things we can't save ourselves from, including death, offering complete forgiveness of sins, dying that sacrificial death, and then rising from the grave, just as he predicted. He shows that he is plenty competent to save us, and he is certainly willing, and he shows that he's got a character we can trust because he loves us more than we love ourselves, way more than I deserve does he love me. And so when I understand, when I'm looking at Jesus in Scripture, this is God. This is what he's like. He's like this all the time. He will be like this for eternity. It now is meant to remove my doubts. I can trust a God like this. He is almighty, but his almighty power is harnessed by his sacrificial love. And that just makes me want to run after him and follow him. It wins my trust I become reconciled to him, and now I want to do his will. I want to know his will. It's what it means to be converted, folks, what it means to become a Christian. I hope that's happened to you. And if it hasn't, I hope it will. So seeing God in Christ removes our doubts, or so it's meant to. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 26.3. Once we come to that place of actual trust in Christ, our creator and redeemer, It says, you will keep in perfect peace, all doubts removed, perfect peace, all who, what does it say? Trust in you. Not trust about you, facts about you, but trust in you. God is alive. Christ is alive. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. Hebrews 13, 5, the New Testament, it says, be content with what you have, because he has said, I will never leave you. I will always be where? See, the disciples, they were out in that storm. Jesus, they thought, was still back on shore praying, and they were scared and alone. They thought they were seeing a ghost. They felt, you know, that they were just overwhelmed by the obstacles. They were trying to do God's will, but ran into a storm. But, but Jesus was there, and that's what he wanted them to learn from that. I'm always going to be there. He said that when he rose from the grave, and he told them, go in the world, make disciples of every nation. He says, I'm going to be with you guys. I'm going to be right there. I'm going to be at your side to the end of the age. And he's at your side if you're a follower of Christ, to the end of the age. When we feel his presence and when we don't, he's still there. You've got to know that. Romans 15, 13, it says, I pray that the God, I pray that God, the source of hope, 
will fill you completely with joy and peace. Why? Why? Because you, what does it say? Trust him. Everything swings on do we trust him or not? That's the beginning of the removal of doubts, and that's the end of the removal of doubts. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to close in an unusual way, and I guarantee it's a way that you will be so glad you came this morning to be a part of. We're going to share in video form one young man's unique way of describing his personal struggle with doubt. Uh, I'll, I'll come back ultimately and close this out, but I promise you this will be one of the more unique experiences you've ever had in your life. I, I've probably watched this thing a half dozen times or more every time. It, it just wrecks me. So be a part of this. I suspect we can all feel Jesus all around. Uh, I got to believe this is a very special Sunday, a very special moment. And some of you know for the first time in your life that there's a real God. He's made himself known. And some of you he's beckoning on to start doubting your doubts. To start asking and seeking and knocking like he said in Matthew 7 with the promise that the one that asks receives and the one that seeks will find and the one that knocks the door will be opened like Katie did. Some of you, you need to start the search that your doubts can be removed. He wants them to remove but he knows that your doubts won't be removed unless you do the search and it's proved sufficiently to you. Level two doubts. Some of us, we are followers of Christ but we are not familiar enough with what he says are realistic expectations for us in this age. We're not sure of how much power he's willing to express in us and through us. We're not exactly sure of his care and protection. And for us, maybe today is a call to, to get closer so that when you're at sea and the storm is rising and Jesus seems a million miles away, that you know better and you know the way our king and our captain operates and you're confident you're confident in the storm so for you maybe it's a, a day to get real real serious about studying God's word and whatever mechanism that may mean third level some of you this is the most important day in your whole life other than the day you were born for some of you I suspect this is the day that trust in your creator Christ your savior Christ was birthed in you for the first time you're saying I hear it if he loved me enough to create me and enough to die for me who better to follow sign me up and this day you've you've gone from death to life you've gone from being blind to seeing you've left the kingdom of darkness and entered the kingdom of light this is your day this is your day and if it's so will you consider sharing it with us on a card we get things like this on cards nearly every week or every other week the only reason I ask for it is so that we can help you now to start to grow to start to learn we can give you a lot of tools we can help you so cherish this day cherish this moment but more importantly let the prompting of the Holy Spirit that you're feeling inside now let it be followed up with some good constant action let's pray father we are so grateful that you are a God that ever seeks us and urges us to ever seek you with the promise that we will find. May your spirit continue to work in a stir. You know each one of us. You know what we need to do. Motivate us, we pray, in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.